0: Welcome to another episode of Stop Button Favorites, a podcast of the website thestopbutton.com. My name is Andrew Wycliffe. My website is thestopbutton.com. Stop Button Favorites is a monthly podcast of audio commentaries to certain films that I've written about on the Stop Button that are my favorites, or some of my favorites. This episode for September 20, 2015, is John Ford's The Searchers, which was recommended as a podcast. And audio commentary subject by Philip O'Neill. And I'm watching the Warner Brothers um, Warner Home Video Blu-ray. And I'll be starting right now. So the first time I saw The Searchers was in college, freshman year of college. I had never watched westerns growing up. My grandfather, my mom's dad, had only wanted to watch westerns, and so she never wanted to watch westerns. She made some exceptions, though I don't think... I think she told me to see Silverado. I don't think she liked Silverado enough to watch it again. And I loved um, Dances with Wolves, White Earp, um, I saw I remember I saw bad girls I was in that same uh, wider era resurgence of the western didn't like bad girls so when I started watching AMC after high school I started seeing westerns but it was stuff like um Oxbow Incident and Jimmy Stewart Universal Westerns um it was not John F- Wayne westerns because um, I also didn't grow up watching John Wayne movies. And I, I had a certain opinion of him that um, something like The Green Berets, which I tried watching around this time, certainly didn't um, dissuade me from. But The searches I watched in film class. And I'm going to shut up because look at this shot. So The Searchers is 56. So I'm convinced that John Ford saw and was influenced by Wells just as much as Wells was influenced by him based on um, the the Henry Fonda, John Ford movie from 47. Um, Look at the Look at her reactions. This is one of... So, I mean, I've, you know, as much as an undergrad can, studied this film for a film class. Um, I've read about it. You can talk about Ford's framing of um, the family shots and the friend shots later and how it... What you get out of the relationship and also how it moves forward and prepares you for story elements. What the searchers often does, of course, is it prepares you for story elements. It gets you wondering about story elements. For example, what's the story with John Wayne and her? And then it never answers them for you. And that's one of the more Sort of almost veritas too far to go with it, but <laughs> um, but what I was saying about the um, what is the name of the movie from 40s, The Fugitive? Um, where Henry Fonda's on the run in um, Mexico. It's very much sort of um, Citizen Kane, Amberson's, Wells influences. And of course, Wells was a big Ford fan in the 30s. And I mean, we're interrupting exposition. I mean, the question is, is Ethan's brother just completely um, unaware of whatever's going on with Ethan and, is that Martha? Um, Inappropriate flirtation is a a good standard of Westerns. Boon Raku a few years ago, which is a sort of futuristic Western thing, um, acknowledged that element of the genre really well. I'd never seen Jeffrey Hunter. and Or maybe I'd seen – I actually had seen Sergeant Rutledge by this point. So I was like a Jeffrey Hunter fan. And I'd only ever heard bad things about him because um, he was the original captain on Star Trek, so. (sighs) Such a jerk. My film professor was, I'm not sure if he was convinced, but he thought that um, Jeffrey Hunter's parentage should be questioned somehow. Like, was he? And the problem with it is, is that nothing sensational. I mean, I'm sure there is a, a something questionable about it, but Ethan is a character. It doesn't work if he's secretly Ethan's son. It just doesn't work with the character. Uh, and so they're not, and it doesn't work with the movie and what they're doing because that could be just such an amazing movie—the un, you know, claimed half-breed son um, hunting his niece, and so. Uh. This is, of course, is interesting. Just this idea that this civil war could go on um its end could go unknown to the youth of a of the frontier um one of the interesting things when you start watching a lot of classic movies is seeing how general knowledge is treated like what the audience is supposed to know going in what their sentiments are about a subject what I mean, in the early 40s, that's fun because you can find your pro-FDR and anti-FDR movies. But this, if you look at that print, I mean, who knew I could ever be as excited about seeing one of those liver spots on John Wayne's hand? But it's such a good performance from Wayne. I mean... He's had bad performances, he's had mediocre performances, he's had good performances. But this one is just. It's like Ford cuts out the grandstanding. Yeah, it is, Martha. You know, the film class, you could just say the chair shows the the distance and that Martha and Ethan are together against Aaron. So now here we have our implication that Ethan's a criminal. And... Well, The Searchers, I think I had heard of it. Um, it was somewhat in the vein of Dirty Dozen is that it was this this male classic. Oh, there are John Wayne's small feet that um, I remember in the 90s. Um, I think some shock jock made a joke about it. and Some people got upset. Other people thought it was quite funny how small his feet were. Um We've got Ward Bond coming in here. And Moe's Harper, who I I should know who plays him, but he's just Moe's. But one of the things is that we're almost ten minutes into the movie, and we have no idea what's going to make it. Why is this an American classic? It doesn't have certain hallmarks uh predictable hallmarks of what people like in their classic movies and again here here we have some of those shots where we see how the friends and family function and what their relationships are in oh there we got the rock and chair um in relation to one another And this is one of those, I mean, big scenes like this are wonderful to watch um, and analyze and see how things are going on. But it's just the way Ford uses him in this is he's inviting the viewer into this space and then bringing other elements into it. For example, here comes Ethan. Ward Bond I had heard of because in Leonard Maltin's review of Bride Bride of Frankenstein, he says, look fast for Ward Bond as a policeman. And Ward Bond is in the riot scene. And there was an exclamation point in parentheses, I believe, behind Ward Bond's name. And Maltin only ever used that when it was like a weird casting choice. So I never could understand once I started seeing old movies, um, more old movies, Oh, I love that cut. Um, so I was talking about the cut and then I watched the scene and I lost my train of thought. Here we have that crime element coming back. We still don't know what it's about. But Ward Bond is what I was talking about. And Ward Bond, so once I started seeing movies on AMC, I'd start seeing Ward Bond and things. And he was in a lot because also at the end of – in the late 90s, there was the AFI's Top 100 movies. And I think Ward Bond was in the most of them. He in like 23 of the 100 best or 13 or something like that. So eventually I learned by sort of broadening my, my scope of classic movies from Universal Horror Movies and um, MGM and American Hitchcock You know, you kind of miss a lot of Warner Brothers in there. Um, And understanding the studio system uh, more and reading about it sort of after high school. You you get a a different sort of – it actually feels like you're discovering these movies – as though, because you are so familiar with. So he knows whatever the secret is. Ward Bond knows whatever the secret is. I just wonder how Ford directed him. God, so good. One of the things I also was going to say is Ford and Max Steiner, especially since it's Max Steiner, I mean, come on. Max Steiner is the guy who created the idea of uh, – or if he didn't create it, he, he he did one of the first sort of wall-to-wall scores with King Kong, I believe. Now, that shot right there is Forever Abed, also in Superman. Um Donner uses that shot in Superman with some adaptation and and some very beautiful sweeping camera work. But so Ford knew this sort of Technicolor genre picture was bygone. And so he builds that nostalgia in to expectation. I've always taken that to imply that Ethan knows exactly who his parents are and that he's not related to them. And I've never seen Red River, so I guess I don't know if John Wayne and Montgomery Clift played off each other in a similar way. I've always imagined they did, but I don't know. But Ford got um, John Wayne to act more than anybody else ever did, certainly more than um, trying to think Hawks ever did. Um, just because Ford cared about performances. On an individual basis, more than Hawks did. You can see that, and that's that's a very different um, perspective. Hawks is is the studio perspective of the the cast and unity um, selling it, whereas. Ford, and you can see this even in his Will Rogers movies, he he wants the individual performances to distract from the whole and from each other. And when Ford movies don't work out, it's usually because of that situation that he, he isn't doing that. My film professor also said when we were talking about John Huston versus John Ford that, because I, I think I, I just was telling him what I'd seen, and I'd just seen Heaven Knows Mr. Allison, which I believe is John Ford. Um, he had said something like, um, he'd seen something like, so. I mean, there you get your very melodramatic strings. You have Ethan actually cleaning the horse like he said that um, they were supposed to. And you, you have, like, the math in his head that he knows whatever is going to happen, he can't prevent it. it it's this fatality, uh, a fatalistic look at it. But I guess you would actually say that that – is telling of what he expects of for Lucy as well, but um. Just this very Technicolor look right here. This is intentional on Ford's part. It's this is just such a weird. I mean, here we have them without – it's not Lucy. Sorry. Um, It's – this sequence plays – this gives you the most look at the family without Ethan and what he has to do with it. And, I mean, it's serendipitous that it came in like that. But then here we have this very real landscape mixed with what's got to be a set. Except we've seen this in, you know, the world. So it's a very nice move to establish a set on location and then sort of duplicate it in, in studio. And she just figured it out. But this is before Unforgiven, the Unforgiven, which I think was a big Western. And 60's sort of the year where you started seeing, uh, I mean, it was the way my mom had always described Western history to me uh, was that you had Westerns with John Wayne and stuff like that. And then you had the Sergio Leone ones, and that totally changed everything. And you can look at it and see that, right? Like Westerns had gotten less popular in the 60s or whatever, and so the Italians were doing them, and they were dead by the late 70s. Butch and Sundance, the early days, can be given that credit. But the thing is, They're two different things. The sort of Western as action movie um, replaced Western as drama, Western as comedy. And there were even Western comedies, but they certainly did have some of that um, action vibe in it. But Western as drama, that didn't happen for a while Um, again. And there we go, we don't get to see anything, even though it's an obvious influence on Star Star Wars and uh, the farm. This, of course, is Monument Valley. Um, some really nice day for night shooting there, or I guess day for dawn. And, um, it's not in Texas. I think Monument Valley's in Utah. And there we go there's so so one of the right there we go never would have had this shot in, you know the 30s or 40s um, but one of the things when I watch this movie again I always am waiting at this point to see Ethan's Reaction to Martin at this point. Martin, of course, is a masculine version of Martha. Um, So... Is it Debbie? So, it is Debbie. Oh, man. Just... And I I should have looked up the name of the cinematographer so at least I could have appropriately um, revered his name. The other thing is about old westerns is there are a lot of if not funeral songs, church scenes. There is a lot of singing in old Westerns. Um, So I think this one has actually been in another um, Western I've seen. So now, just like I said, film class observation, you have Martin and Laurie one way, and then they flip them for the next shot, drawing the attention to them, even though they're part in the whole... Very big Steiner musical moment here. And that is the weird thing. When you see somebody like Steiner, and this might happen with Bernard Herrmann, but I think less. When you go from like Steiner's 1934, 1938 scores, and then you look at him in, you know, widescreen color, and you see how he's changed and what he still keeps. It's just it it creates a sensation that you don't really have with modern composers because as far back as you can go for John Williams eventually you just hit tv movies and then you know he makes it to jaws and sugarland and the musical scores have worked the same way like you can't get away with using a music cue um to draw attention to something like that uh you couldn't do it in 78 you can see the guy breathing. Um, in 78 with Superman when the music says, you know, Superman at the beginning, which uh, I've always noticed and Donner comments on in one of his commentary tracks for it. You can't get away with that in the rest of the movie. Um, it's too campy. Look at that shot. Oh, man. You gotta watch Mo's. I'd kind of have loved to see Star Wars with where Han Solo treated Luke like um, Ethan treats Martin. I think it would have been really fun with those two. And just to show my fairness, that was a bad cut. Ethan, should, The sound of him catching it should have been before the this shot, but it wasn't. And here's our hills like white elephants. And that's another thing when you, you you look at older movies is they're not in a vacuum, right? Just because they were censored doesn't mean they're in a vacuum of the material. A good example, of course, is Grapes of Wrath or um, Razor's Edge, which are even earlier. Love this shot. Um, I've already told the anecdote about how there's, like, a swamp in World of Warcraft that looks like this. And I, I, I used to have a 27-inch iMac, and it was, like, the most impressive thing I to see. Just it was really cool. Now we're on set. But I mean, John Wayne doesn't get to lead these scenes, you know? Ward Bond gets to lead them, or Jeffrey Mm -hmm. Hunter, and... John Wayne's background here. And, I mean, you, it's a star-making turn for Hunter. It's like Ford clearly gives him a lot here. And it's too bad he didn't catch on. Because, I mean, you know, Hunter's the classic sympathetic hero in this movie and uh, – or in a – in a mo- – in, in this setting. I mean, if you removed Ethan from it, you can see Jeffrey Hunter – Um being part of it this music is actually almost like the skull it's practically identical to the skull island music in uh kong yep so when you're watching this even when you know the synopsis right uh wayne and and hunter go looking for the missing Wow, look at Monument Valley, man. So good. Um, This is still following through on that premise, right? We're a third of the way through the movie, and the present action is three or four days now. But, I mean, you have Ward Bond doing almost this comic performance next to Ford, or next to Wayne, who's not even, you know, reacting to it. Got a little bit of sped-up film there. This shot, I'm always convinced, because you see in the bottom right, You saw some land. I'm always convinced that was an insert that they did later um, for some reason. I suppose I could listen to Richard Schinkel's commentary and see if he talks about things like that. Since I'm clearly interested in them. Searchers, for me, is very much like... um, Kane, which I'm ill-advisedly going to do as a commentary track in December, um, in that I can get lost in sort of the – I don't know if, if it's filmmaking minutiae, but just the the technique. You can get lost in the technique of it. What I mean getting away with that moment of sincerity from bond so quick very good. <sighs> I mean Moe's is I don't know. Like if C3PO weren't Niles Crane but were Cliff Clavin instead, you know? I mean, he's just this this wonderful addition to see C- any scene. Sort of is a humor release. But also, sort of, without ever leaving the intense melancholy of it. And there you go, he got over killing someone. I mean it's it's Ford has established that it is a very serious film, and that is a very serious action sequence, yet he's able to get away with that sort of moment with Bond and Wayne, where so and here we have Wayne killing for pleasure. 56, I'm just trying to think, when Friendly Persuasion came along. Is that Harry Carey Jr.? If so, he played a very similar part in Rio Grande. A Rio Grande, um, which I hate. I loathe that movie. Um, I just watched it, and his place in the western is—I don't know if I'd go so far as to say it's a not a genre standard, but the younger men learning you know, coming into their own, certainly became to be a standard in the Western, starting in, well, Rio Grande days, 49 or 50, and, you know, it makes it more identifiable to younger viewers that, you know, you have your 15-year-old who enlisted young and things like that, Um Whereas your lead is, at this point, John Wayne's age and probably old enough to be Jeffrey Hunter's father. (laughs) What's... So frustrating about John Wayne is that he'll give a performance like this, and then he'll give a really crappy one. I don't know McHugh, right? Like I don't just something absurdly crappy. And there's just no—he's not some actor who does crappy movies and turns in a good performance, right? It's almost like. It's almost like he knew what he was doing. He was consciously not trying very hard on some movies. Usually his more popular movies. And you can say that of numerous actors... But John Wayne's popularity is based on those other movies. There's like a commercial aspect to it. Almost cravenly commercial. You don't see that from somebody like William Holden who's consistently acting, putting effort into it. But You know, take John Wayne or that's maybe the most character development Ethan's gotten so far and it's 40 minutes in. Um, the sound design on this, um, Historical inaccuracies, et cetera, aside, and probably not, I mean, when you think about German-Russian war crimes and so on, um, Japanese, French, whatever, um... Not sort of acknowledging. I mean, it's. Sorry. Damn, that was good. Look at how good that is. Oh. And they actually, you know, put Jeffrey Andrew in a hole to make John Wayne so much taller than him or taller than him at all. So good. Um,. Just the way uh, suggestions are done in the film sort of to keep it clean requires inventiveness that a nuance that love that cut. I'm just watching, sorry. When they were going to remake this as a space western with... Oh, I think it was Jason Patrick and Bruce Willis. Um, I just could sort of see that that would be their trailer moment and Bruce Willis wouldn't be able to do the monologue. And now we have, you know, a very... Big change. We have a return to the opening shot, but it's brighter. It's a different family. And we see the Jorgensen's pipe, so we know it's him. It's a relatively small cast. um, Not just... By the time you have the dance sequence or the wedding, that many people is just so many. Vera Mills, I believe. So now they've been looking for a year, I believe. We find out. Six months, maybe. Oh, no, there's a huge fight between Ethan and Lori, which establishes that they... Yep, here we go. So they've been hunting for a year and they're coming through. So it's further on even from the snows. Like this isn't like they gave up in the snow. This is what happened after that. But I was just going to say we're 45 minutes in and we're just finding out that there's this, you know, subplot in the ground situation that they're courting where they ought to be. Love it. There's a certain worldliness, even in his aloofness to Hunter at this point. Martin's grown up. Okay, the bath scene. (laughs) I love the bath scene. And so now two minutes later, we're catching up. This is the first time she says Texican yep that must have just played so well in Texas in 56 they must have just felt so good about themselves She's a very interesting sort of not foil. Uh, Lars is a Lars is a dip, right? Lars is a big-hearted moron. She's smart, right? So she and Ethan Bond and sort of look at Lars like a pet, but. And then there's some more details in a bit, uh, in a second, um, after Ethan gets done reading. That light reflecting in uh, Lars's glasses has got to be um, the lighting. It can't be that because I mean, the only in scene lighting is that lamp on the table. I wonder if it's on the e-strikes. Ditto on her um, sort of what you, the thing in her hair, barrette. I love the way Ford uses headroom. I mean, this is the thing: is this is not Panavision, right? This. The searches is a perfect example of why a um, 185 or 177 can be uh, an ideal um, aspect ratio for a widescreen experience. So the right, film professor always wanted to know what Ethan was going to tell Martin there. To the point I think he, he like, was wondering if it was in the book. But and now we have a nice romantic comedy moment. And, of course, Ford never really did a lot of romantic comedy. Um. But I always thought Ethan was just going to tell um, Martin that he was Proud of him I mean it just seemed I mean Martin Ethan had just set him up With like a good life And He was going to sort of Let him lose Wow Here we go And there you go, right? They've known each other that long. She wasn't just some sympathetic character at the funeral uh, 35 minutes ago. We're 52 minutes in and we find out that they've been, you know, betrothed for 20 years. So there's this sort of, for lack of a better term, Puritan, you know, uh, angry woman thing she does. And Miles exaggerates it, but it she's not always doing it it's there's your yep So they've been for two years, which means her brother was hunting with for for a year. That's not technically a jump cut, but it it is a jump cut. Like just, she walked away and then came in at the same, at a reverse of the angle. Now we're at Futterman's. We don't get to see them meet up again. See, this is the stuff I love in this movie is they're together again. They're valuable. or they They see each other's value again. So we're 55 minutes in. We're not quite halfway out. This is, of course, a scene that I was sort of familiar with because of uh, Leone really liked the crappy shopkeeper or the funny shopkeeper, so i I'd seen it in you know three or four movies. So now we're getting a look at their relationship as it's changed. This is the first time we've really seen them together outside of a dramatic scene, uh, melodramatic scene. Um, (laughs) Sort of the bickering. I mean, it's... See, it's not a buddy movie. And that's. If Butch and Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid created the sort of buddy movie, which could put two popular stars together. Um. Ford did get good. <laughs> yep. Look at that small foot. Wow. I think he's wearing a heel. Yes, he is. It's the Robert Downey Jr. of uh, classic Hollywood, ladies and gentlemen. In um, <laughs> More ways than one. And this is just also – I don't think I finished this thought earlier. Even though it's a film classic, you don't know where it's going. Um, The plot outline that you're given doesn't prepare you for scenes like this. And there we go. (laughs) And he's just going to go to sleep with the body over there. well and so yeah there you go we're playing it for humor okay so they are leaving but they're playing that line for humor except it never did occur to him just like it never occurred to him that he might get back in time to the farm to save it um it never occurs to him that he should save um debbie rescue debbie charlie Uh, and he's gonna sing he's such a tool Um, and it took me a second the first time I saw it to to realize he'd been on the the search party he'd be um, he didn't get much dialogue at all there so that he sort of moved on with his life and become this dope um and so this is their first scene without Ethan or um Martin. And we're opening with it. It's it's an opening of a scene just like when Ethan and Martin got to the Jorgensen farm um fifteen years ago. But there's this implication that it's not that far away as as not so much time has progressed as the last time, the late Mr. Futterman. Oh, I love Mrs. Jorgensen. I wish I knew who played her. And this is, you know, the movie's half over. This would be the first time I'd say that it has an element of sort of epical. St- When you think of something being a beloved classic, this sequence is the one that stands out. Um, It's accessible. It's adorable. Yeah. (laughs) And I wonder... I mean, again, this would be something to, to... Read the Schink, uh, shink, listen to the Schink, Richard Schinkel um, commentary on, because, <laughs> and I love the Steiner score here. I mean, it's so playful, and but I, I guess it, just what I mean is was this always intended to be done this way? It's a very, it stands out in a way that not, not many movies layer when they do multi-layered narrative, layer it with this level of sort of artifice and We've just gone from it being in the imagination of the Jorgensen's listening to the letter to what actually occurred. It's an interesting sort of technique, and it almost goes, well, this is the next episode of The Searchers. It's like the first hour is the pilot episode, the cliffhangers after the Futterman thing, and now we have part two of The Searchers. So now we have situation comedy. (laughs) And I mean, just with the the change in the relationship between Martin and Nathan, it just seems so different. So, there you have Ma Jorgensen with all that sympathy, and Charlie just a total jackass so and I mean now this actually shows you more about the family dynamic. She has all the empathy, but it's questionable whether or not she wants Lori to read it for Lori or sort of to or if it's for you know the family unit benefit that. The letter is an important thing. But now, and then we just, we return, we go back into the frame and the Mrs. Polly, that The day for night in this is so good that when you see something else, um, like from the 70s, that has bad day for night, it makes you wonder what sort of intelligence was lost um, between generations of uh, cinematographers that – the guy who shot this knew how to use his filters – and some guy shooting for, I don't know, F- Frankenheimer, Friedkin, and 77 didn't know how to do it anymore. And to some degree, I wonder if that's like the fault of, uh, and this is just, you know, cruelty. Um, <clears throat> Well, I mean, and it's, it's, it's. Ethan mocking um, Martin's racism that Martin didn't know he had. Um, but what I was I going to say about the. What was I going to say about the photography? And I mean, Luke has been so sympathetic, right? Like, she was so gently handled in the opening scene. She's so cute. And there we have the water with the same exact um, level of daylight uh, that it it previously had. But I was going to say that Deliverance had a a very artificial day for night um, stylized. And even when people weren't trying to do it stylized, it's almost like they just didn't care about it anymore. And these moments make look um, Ethan so lovable, uh, the lovable uncle. That when we get to um, his meanness again, it's sort of disturbing. Uh, it's a way to reset the audience's sort of sympathy level, empathy level, and it also lends to the sort of part two aspect of it, and the the way we um, the narrative's broken up um, in the summary to scene. Makes this sequence feel a lot longer than it is And In Sort of Good thing he's never been in a Robert Rodriguez movie He'd never stop shooting So I mean it's just So much hatred and lovable Uncle Ethan becomes very different. And so we've lost sort of the gentle humor um, aspect of the um, frame. The narrative frame and we've also got this Jeffrey Hunter setting up what we're supposed to expect from this, the events of this day was it Ethan freaking out or is it these stuntmen stunt riders um, going down a mountain to camp it's no, this is what, um, this troubling discovery was the thing that screwed up Marty's day. And then it's just this kick in the ass right here that, Looks dead. Does he go to look? No. So we've gone from when... Martin felt like looking at um, a uh, a dead uh, acquaintance or loved one was important to him being totally okay with not looking. Sort of Ethan's sense of fatalism is creeping up on Marty and aging him. And we also have the grand scale now. I mean, look at this. We've got um, more soldiers per – more people per shot than have been in the movie to this point. Um, And, I mean, this you can't even count, right? It's it's so many that we've gone from a movie that had at most 20 people in it, not counting um, the Comanches, And one thing I remember talking to to other film enthusiasts about with this film who did not like uh, – one friend of mine, Pete, referred to this as the movie where um, John Ford realized he was full of shit, uh, which I don't agree with actually because um, there's a certain sort of – Not entirely, right? Like, yes, Ford had really um, crappy characterizations and sort of um, cultural philosophy of uh, American Indians in a bunch of his movies. But he also didn't in a bunch of other ones. So it's, it's very different. And uh, this is just terrifying the audience, right? Like, shouldn't you just shoot them? At this point, they've gone mad. so we've got all there it's interesting how the film deals with this sort of racism because I think Mrs. Jorgensen says that we need to stop uh, that Martin needs to stop Ethan or something or. Maybe the inverse. I mean, so there's no talking about it. There's no... But in in that scene where the casual racism of the guard, Ethan's overt racism, and Marty's sort of fear, awareness of his own possibility of, of sort of racism... Violent racism would, uh, has to be there. I mean, it, and now we're turning it into, you know, the end of the episode. They'll never find that girl, but next week we'll get another letter and maybe they will. Oh. Such a moron. He's like a he's a sc- sleazeball mor- he's a harmless sleazeball moron. There aren't very many of those. But he can sing. Is he the guy in Rio Grande that sings? I wonder. Um, But yeah, he can sing. So he's not incompetent. It's weird. It's such a weird character. Um, And how do we know we're in Mexico? Well, there are some Barreros and a little bit of the music. And here we go. So we're, this is us seeing them out of the letter frame, too. So, so Wayne's got gray hair. Moses got some facial hair. And uh, Jeffrey Hunter just got a uh, heartthrob uh, haircut versus having a haircut more appropriate for if you were 28 playing a teenager. so my 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 anecdote about the rocking chair is that when I was in grad school um, one of my um, professor's instructors uh, who was a fine artist and also uh, mixed media, made a short film called The Searchers," which used the song from the searchers sort of uh Stylized um, with the old-time Western sepia thing going on, and it was shots of you know the idea of searchers as people who look for uh, free furniture. And I, I remember when I got to the end, I was like, "It had to end with a rocking chair." And he's just like, it, the, 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 "I didn't find one." And so there's like this. I, I've never the art. He, he didn't want there to be artifice um even on that level. But whereas I thought that playing toward it being a playing up the searcher's element was more important than it it being um honest, actually. And so we're missing out on what um Wayne's finding out right now. Ethan's finding all that stuff out, and so Jeffrey Hunter's a good looking man, and <laughs> Moe's. No, oh, and the dancer does not get get to see Marty in the buff. One of the other things about Hollywood westerns, so before I saw The Searchers, I'd probably even seen stuff like Broken Arrow, the one where Jeff Chandler plays a Native American chief, um, in the desert, of course, because there were lots in the desert. It was really awkward to see one set in sort of the, uh, Northeast, um, and those those films sort of stand out. But the Sergio Leone ones did not have uh, running across a, an American Indian tribe, tribe as a plot point, which most Westerns always did. It's like people expected to see them. We got the wind. We got a little bit of wind in the sound here. And the structure of scenes has changed a lot. Um... So, he's vain. I like this. The sort of <sighs> someone undoubtedly, just based on how popular musing on the American Western has been, undoubtedly has looked at um, the characterization of Native Americans. Hopefully, to the point that they looked at how the characters function in scenes. And, is it the big reveal? It's the big reveal. There we go. And, um, is this Natalie Wood's first movie? It's not. No, because, wasn't she the kid in, um... The, the Miracle on 34th Street, which I need to see again, but I like that Ford had the other wife with her back turned, and he could have done two, right? He could have done uh, waited for the reveal, but he just went with it. Because now you just get Marty reduced to a different um type of role, an unsure role and but given time to um, the sort of um, sword peasant royalty of um, native Mexicans that you see in a handful of Westerns. I can think of other... um, Well, I don't know. I I can't think of any specific examples, but there are other ones because when it's in The Three Burials of uh, Melchizedek, I can't remember the rest of the title, the Tommy Lee Jones movie... Um, deals with it a little bit and there we go the music cueing us getting us ready we know something they don't and boom and Martin's back by the way he's not shocked anymore he's gotten with it good thing there was a bridge And now we get I mean he's not willing to shoot Martin at least not even not to threaten to shoot him through him um Okay, so we've got 30 minutes left, so – just trying to think how – and now we have a shot, actually, that calls back to the beginning, which is important. Um or will be important because Ford echoes it again later. Um, sort of with the the dual callback. Um, sort of repurposing the visual. And this isn't... This isn't a sweeping you know sort of western it's ford sets it in a naturally sweeping location and then doesn't do anything with it i mean not doesn't do anything with it he just that that does its job um Very nice, very um, calm sort of setup there. Because yeah, now we're a half hour, so we're a half hour into seeing these two together. <sighs> okay. So, other films, uh, film class story was is that I made a big deal out of this. Um, shot and set up. Um, and their relationship and how it you know represents it and stuff. And my my uh, my essay was chosen as the example to be read for um, for all the essays uh, answers on the searchers, and it was. Really funny because um, my the professor started reading it and um, I didn't know it was mine. I'd forgotten the introduction. And even when he called me up, I was surprised as to that it was mine. I'd forgotten precisely what I'd said. Um, that was, I think, in my second film class. Because I knew that, um, I knew that he read essays, and being the brown nose, will we go with that? Mm, scholarly, uh, pseudo-scholarly brown nose, um... The reason it's an important thing is because until that point, until that ambition to write one of the best essays uh, on the final or midterm, I never would have made the sort of um, conclusions that I made in that essay. The reuse of the line, stuck by the boulder. Um and here we go now we're into a if not comic at least genial uh sequence but yeah the the sort of bold um opinions i i often form about a film it it started with my attempt to be impressive in a in a film class <clears throat> <clears throat> to fuel my ego which in grad school i remember one of my uh professors was shocked to find out i was a leo and i'd never known traits of a Leo, but I was like, actually, in in certain circumstances, specifically academic ones, I'm, it comes through. I might even have a copy of that essay. I just don't know where the heck it would be. I, I think I have one box of collected uh, stuff from undergraduate, but it'd be interesting to see it again. And Ward Bond is still all right, everybody. I mean, that's you know, we haven't seen him for an hour, and it it it, it puts the film. I don't know if you'd say into its third act, but it certainly starts. An episode of the Searchers. It starts the third episode of the Searchers TV show. Uh, read of the of the narrative. One of the things that I did really pay attention to when I was a um, in film class. Was and I talked about timing a little bit earlier. Was timing because when you watch a movie <sighs> for pure entertainment, um, like or not without critically thinking about its making or sort of narrative composition, you um. so there we go they've, they've bought it again I mean just looking at how their relationship progresses throughout the film and Lars isn't very happy to see them um, understanding how much time something takes maybe in relation to how the how much of the film it takes up, right? So our flashback took up 15 minutes, which is, you know, Ford's got two hours to tell this story. That's a chunk. It's a pretty good chunk. It's an eighth, I think, or 12th or 10th. 10th 10th-ish. But then, um, (laughs) it's such a different film. Than the beginning... Five years, so that means she put off Charlie for two years, maybe? And there we go. At 97, we find out that, 97 minutes, we find out that the romantic, you know, subplot that's been part of the her sort of ground situation was part of his, and it's just this really neat. It's the only time that Ford and the screenwriter, whoever it is, um. It's the only time that there's that sort of payoff other than maybe Debbie and the conclusion. But even the conclusion doesn't um, go as far with it as, say, this scene does, which just ended in a sort of classical face-off. I've always liked to think that he was defending looks on her. And now we have sort of, we have a um, comedic, classic, um, sort of screwball fight scene. (laughs) Like you can just see that they, you know, could have cut them getting stuck in the door together. And then you have this sort of sensitivity to one another, even though Marty thinks he's a total doof, which he is. (laughs) This sort of protracted summer camp honor. It it distracts from asking what's going to happen to Debbie. Debbie. It distracts from asking how serious is a movie where you've got Jeffrey Hunter biting somebody's uh, knee. How serious it's going to – Ford's going to let the conclusion get, especially when Ward-Bodd can't even um, not laugh. don't like that don't like that cut <laughs> something about that kick <laughs> something about the way that Jeffrey Hunter kicks him uh, it almost feels like a comedic version of ombre um which has other of course mrs jorgensen's fighting for love while lars doesn't know and lori's secretly delighted And now we get Charlie sort of growing up or, or revealing that. And John Wayne's in the background reminding you that this isn't the movie. Um, and. Yeah, it's a nice wedding party. Nobody got married. But it's not quite as – it's not one of the most memorable wedding scenes. It's not as – it's not overdone. So, it it makes me just wonder about how the film was regarded as a classic. Not why. I, I know why. But how. How people regarded it sort of the the historiography of searcher's appreciation. Wayward Bond says demise is the same way that um, Quint says it in um, Jaws. Robert Shaw says it. <laughs> and here we've got Patrick Wayne in um uh, just a wonderful cameo. Um making is this the second um Patrick Wayne of course is the lead of people at the time forgot. So um I did a commentary on that a couple months ago, and I wonder if he's the only crossover um, actor so far. I should look. But uh, he's just lovable. And it's this weird and very John Ford Western cavalry. It's like a throwback to the Rio Grande. And, I mean, so you've just got – Wayne making fun of uh Wayne making fun of his son playing a Yankee cavalryman in a John Ford movie where at one point John Wayne played a Yankee cavalryman who made who had a son not played by his son directed by John Ford Rio Grande it's undoubtable that there was a connection for the filmmakers. Uh, uh, Acknowledgement of it at some point. So, we get the family back together because Moses is there. And Moses is sort of the center of the new family in the same way that Martha was of the old family. She has to be, he has to be there um, in some way. Um, sort of, to make the audience feel comfortable, uh, whereas during the letter reading sequence, it was it was uneasy because of Charlie and just the drama related to the letter itself. There is rock and chair. And this is just a great shot, and this is the new Charlie I mean he's still a doof, but he's back in the mode of being an effective sort of action hero and a and a formidable one. <laughs> Good thing they're cattle ranchers. (laughs) And giving Ward Bond this, it just is, since he and John Wayne had such a relationship, and, and look at the way Ford is directing it. You're supposed to look at Patrick Wayne right now and you're supposed to figure out that it's Patrick Wayne at some point without pay is not funny anymore word bonds you know ready to go and the heaviness is returned and Max Steiner's music is telling us we're gonna maybe resolve this so Another thing... It's too late. Whoa. It's Laurie who does this. Who finally... Finally, 11 minutes from the end of the movie, says, you know, reveals the sort of deep racism, the senseless racism that doesn't necessarily fuel the quest, um, because Marty would have gone on it anyway, but it, and then we have this sequence, which opens with, you know, that great cut, these great cuts. Look at this photography. Um, And it's it's for getting to do Monument Valley, uh, all of it. Um, I don't know if I don't know if Ward Bond's ever done, or has he? I don't know that I've ever seen him in a role where he's playing a young version of the reverend he he tends to i think i've seen him in villain roles sort of comic relief roles supporting roles but i don't know if i've ever seen him in a supporting role of that nature probably have i just have forgotten So here's this, yeah. See, you've got to play that this the ground situation's even longer, goes even further back, and that Ethan isn't set up to lie about that. So the question is, I mean, it's just sort of this racism, general racism can't work on him. So. Personal vengeance has to. And I like in Wayne's turn there, the wordless surprise when he hurries up. And now we all get shirtless Jeffrey Hunter. Not sure how they shot. some of this during the day and got that out of it because like you just don't see this level of uh, quality in day for night shooting anymore I mean any you wouldn't do it anymore because well maybe it would I mean there's a filter in iMovie I think but I think eighties action um sort of eighties adventure television with bad day for night um, hurt the practice the technique, and there we go, Patrick Wayne again. <laughs> I mean, just the humor of it. Does your paw know you're out here when John Wayne's standing right there? It's just such a weird inside joke in a movie that... It's a... It's an inside joke for a very reserve, uh, small level of the viewership, yet... For whatever reason, Ford thinks that the ones who are going to get those jokes are the ones who actually need the most relief um, during the film. (laughs) Which I guess, in some ways, you could argue, since he's telling them not to be stupid um, racists. That I mean, and having Laurie um, be such a shit. Um. They're not irredeemable. See, right? Because Lori is, you know, wonderful and everything. And she, even though she's racist about this, she's not irredeemable. So maybe the viewers aren't either. So it's, it's, I don't know that I necessarily ever looked at how Ford approaches. The racism, just because I'm mean, certainly because it's not part of the filmmaking technique. It's not even part of the narrative technique. It's in between. It, it's the script and the filmmaking technique and what they sort of make together. Um, the result of these things. I swear he uses sped-up film here, too. And then Scar's back. Because really... or I think that's Scar, but... I mean, there's this... The sort of... The other thing is, of course, is it's... Women is property on both sides. Um, Debbie's property to the, uh, to Scar just in the same way that, yep. So Scar was the stand-in for John Wayne. And of course, you know, his meanness, Ethan's meanness can't take a break. I mean, and then okay, so we're in the last. I we're under last three and a half minutes of the movie, and Ford manages to have laid enough groundwork that he can turn uh, Patrick Wayne into this wonderful sidekick for Ward Bond, who previously didn't need a sidekick. Like it's you know, this sort of unexpected delight of the film, I guess. So. You know, they whipped cream on the film and on a film that has no point in having whipped cream. That is a shot out of a silent. I swear that this sequence, the way they cut that without an establishing shot, is out of Ford's paying homage to somebody with that. And there we go. We've got to return to the you know the cave, a cave of safety, which echoes back to the home at the beginning. And then, why did he just yell Debbie? And definitely sped up. And the thing is, is that beyond him giving her that little medal. There was no (laughs) relationship between Ethan and Debbie and not even when they, you know, sort of revealed the relationship between her and Martin. I think that... Another actor, another director or something, that would have been John Wayne in makeup. Richard Donner and Mel Gibson, that would have been Mel Gibson in makeup. Because it it was just – the father showing up was – maybe it was bit casting. I I don't know. But it's a perfect opportunity for when they don't – Moe's on his rocking chair. The framing of the family flipped from the framing of the family at the beginning. And – Is Martin going to forgive her? Yep, he does. Because how can you not? Because you can't really believe that John Wayne was ever going to kill her. Come on. Of course, that probably never would have occurred to Lars. (laughs) But I mean, there's no way he was going to kill Martha's daughter. Which is a nice way of keeping that in the film. Um it, it keeps a character continuity that that you might not have even thought of if Lori hadn't brought up it's what Martha would have wanted. Because if Martha wanted would have wanted that, um Martin couldn't believe that because it would have meant that he didn't she didn't she wanted him dead when Ethan found him or blah 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 or left and you get Ford being very symbolic there that, you know. The racism walks away. the The old world thinking has to walk away, and the the people in the house represent um, where the viewer is, where the world is. And that does it for my searcher's commentary, which if it is a repeat of an actor, Patrick Wayne, it's also the first time I ever went over the end of the movie, as far as I know, with the actual content of the commentary, which means you could be watching this to the menu of your Blu-ray or to a black computer screen because the file has stopped. Um, Next month, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm doing something uh, for October, and um, that'll be out October 20th, and thank you for listening to this episode of Stop Button Favorites, where I talked about John Ford's The (laughs) Sutures.